from the Game Nashville Studios, presented by Wholesale Inc. Mount Juliet. It's showtime, folks! A unique look at the world of professional wrestling. And this is Through the Ropes brother, brother, brother. with Chase McCabe. and Rick On Nashville's best sports talk. ESPN. 1025 The Game. And the Game Nashville app. That is right. Through the ropes. ESPN 1025 The Game. Chase McCabe here with you as always. And uh, I am extremely excited about our next guest. You know him from his days as the president of WCW. You know him as the former general manager of Monday Night Raw and the WWE. Eric Bischoff is on the line with us. He's actually going to be in Nashville this Sunday at Zany's along with Conrad Thompson. They're going to be doing 83 weeks live uh, there at Zany's, his podcast that he does. And Eric, appreciate you taking some time. How you doing? I'm doing great. I just got back from a nice uh, morning hike with my dog. The weather's still pretty good. It's uh, late fall here in Cody, Wyoming, but uh, it's not bad. So it's, it's a great day so far. Well, I think it's going to be a little different when you get to Nashville because it's uh, not quite as peaceful. It's growing a lot. There's a lot of hustle and bustle. So I hope you're enjoying your time in Cody. Yeah, but you all got barbecue and we don't. So that's true. That's the trade-off. <laughs> that's true, and uh, there are a lot of great barbecue joints. So you uh, you've been doing the podcast. I had Conrad on a month or so ago um, after the All In event that he did. But you guys do the eighty three weeks podcast, and of course, in reference to when Nitro was was beating Raw, and just how did that all come about? I know he was doing the stuff with Bruce Pritchard, but how did you and Conrad get connected? I, well, through Bruce, really. Um, I had met Conrad about a year or so, a year and a half before he and I started doing our podcast. So I had met him once at a wrestling convention, and then Bruce Pritchard and I uh, visited Conrad at his home, and, and Bruce really set that up uh, about six months before he and I started our podcast. And just got to know him, and then obviously watching the success that he and Bruce was having with something to wrestle with, um, it just kind of happened organically. You know, uh, Conrad and I started talking, and I had a lot of confidence in Conrad's knowledge of the podcasting in- industry and what the wrestling audience would want to hear. So I, I really, I, I followed Conrad's, you know, lead on this. This is really his baby. I, I happen to be on the show, and I'm grateful for that. But um, the idea behind it, the organization, the promotion, just the way it's so buttoned up, the research that goes into all the shows, you know, that's all Conrad and his team. Very, very cool. And the some of the stories that you tell and the, the things that you know he brings up, is that something that you guys kind of discuss beforehand, or does he kind of hit you with questions and you don't necessarily know what's coming? Uh, it varies. You know, we tr- you know, Conrad tries to send me notes for the show that we're going to be doing, usually, you know, the day before. But, you know, he's super busy. I'm super busy. So I think, you know, it would be fair to say that about, Half the time, we've kind of thought about what we're going to do. And about half the time, you know, he just says, okay, here's what we're going to talk about today. You know, and if I know generally what it is, like, for example, if he says we're going to talk, this this week's show was Halloween Havoc 95. I don't know what the questions are going to be, and I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about. But I'll go back to the WWE Network, and I'll watch the pay-per-view so that it's fresh in my mind. Or if it's a Nitro, I'll watch the Nitro. So what, whatever he asked me, at least the show in that time period is 
you know, in, in fresh in my mind, because sometimes this stuff is like 23 or 25 years old, you know, right. I've done, a, I've done a couple things for a minute, you know, in the last 25 years. So it's hard to separate them all and, and really remember the level of detail that Conrad kind of demands. How cool is it? You mentioned the WWE network that you can go back and, and it's what I do all the time and you can watch, you know, a historic moment, whether it's from a Starcade pay-per-view or Monday Nitro or, you know, Bash at the Beach 96 when the NWO was formed, but that that is available to fans that, you know, either grew up watching WCW back in the day or, you know, maybe were a little young and don't remember it and they can see that history. How cool is that for you to be able to experience that? Well, you know, I, I, I don't go back and watch a lot of stuff unless it's something I know we're going to talk about, as I just said. You know, I, I kind of don't live, you know, in in the past too much when it comes to this stuff. But, you know, I do a lot of these conventions and autograph signings, and people are always, you know, wrestling fans have long memories. You know, really, really hardcore wrestling fans, you know, can tell you what color of robe Ric Flair wore, you know, at, at a pay-per-view in 1992, you know. Uh, yeah, Rick couldn't tell you that, you know, but, but wrestling fans could. So what's cool for me now is not only is the network available to help me do what I do, but a lot of the stuff I see, I actually forgot about, you know, because again, as I told Conrad in one of our shows, I've produced over 5,000 hours of wrestling in the last 30 years or in the 30 years I was in the business. And it all kind of runs together when, when you're actually doing it. And I understand how as a fan, when you're watching at home, there are big beats and big moments that really stand out. But as a producer, um, you know, it's like asking a baker, does he remember the fourth wedding cake he ever made? You know, it's like, well, <laughs> you know, I don't know, been a minute. But here's the best part. The best part for me is when I go to these conventions I mentioned, and I have these kids that are, you know, 8, 10, 12 years old, 15 years old, coming up to me wearing NWO shirts and wanting my autograph. And it didn't dawn on me immediately. I almost kind of feel stupid. But, you know, for a while I'm going, God, these kids are just, they'll buy anything, you know. They just want to meet anybody. And I'd say something to that effect, and, you know, there were a parent standing by or something. goes, oh, no, no, he loves you on Nitro. And I started doing the math in my head, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, lady. This is your kid, and you weren't even legal back when Nitro was on. How could this be? And these kids are now watching Nitro and watching WCW, whose parents were teenagers at the time. So it's, it's a fascinating view of just how significant wrestling is as a generational kind of form of entertainment. And I see eight-year-old kids wearing NWO stuff or wanting you know, wearing Hulk Hogan stuff or who, whatever, you know. It's just, it amazes me. And it's, it's cool. Cause I mean, look, I, I remember those. That's when I was growing up watching wrestling and, and I was, I started watching WCW when I really got into wrestling. That's, it was 95 somewhere in there. And, and so that's, what's kind of fun for me is to go back and, and see those, those old days and, you know, you when you're on commentary and then later on with the NWO and, I just, um, it, it's cool to be able to go back in history. We're talking to Eric Bischoff, host of 83 Weeks. He'll be at Zany's this Sunday. Of course, you know him from the WCW days, the WWE days, along with Conrad Thompson. So what can fans expect out of you and Conrad when you're live and you're not doing this, 
in the podcast form uh, that when you're at Zany's at three o'clock on Sunday? Well, you know, there's a couple different things <laughs> that make it different. Uh, one is, you know, even podcasting, you have a lot of latitude in terms of the subject matter and the content and the, the language. It's, it's not like, you know, terrestrial radio or television where you have to be very, very careful, especially in today's environment. You have to be really careful you joke about anything now. Um, but, you know, even though it's podcasting, we still, you know, we've still got advertisers. We've, you know, we've still got sponsors that we've got to be aware of. You know, we're playing to a, a, a worldwide audience. Actually, it's, it's really fascinating. When I look at our analytics for our show and I see that we've got, you know, fans in New Guinea, you know, and, you know, obscure corners of Russia and um, it's just fast, you know, the South Pacific, people are listening to our show. So, you know, you're broadcasting or you're, you're streaming, I guess, to, you know, a big, wide, broad audience and you've got sponsors. So you've got to be a little careful or at least aware. When you're in front of a live audience, first of all, just about everybody in there is going to have a beer or three. So the, the, the vibe is a little different going in. It's a live show, so people have an expectation that they're going to see something or hear something that they're not going to hear or see somewhere else. So, you know, that, that, that urgency, you know, kind of raises the testosterone level a little bit or the energy level. And then with a live show, you never know what's going to happen. You, know, you never know what great question is going to come out of the audience that's going to allow us to go on a, you know, a world-class riff or you know, have us all busted up or maybe pressing down. Because you, know, you get a lot of hard-ass you know, fans that want to be a part of the show and they intentionally ask questions to get a reaction out of you. you know, and sometimes those are fun and funny, and sometimes it's just more fun to have fun with a fan, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> so it, it's <a> different. <laughs> well, again, you can go to uh, and and get those tickets uh, still available. Gen- general admission, $35, VIP, $75 uh, for Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson, 83 weeks live. Now, you just wrapped up the NWO reunion with Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, and Scott Hall in Orlando. And I was, of course, intrigued by this because the NWO was my group back in the day, and I, I think a lot of people can say that. Um, kind of what what all went into that with Hulk Hogan and, and Kevin and, and Scott to put that together and ultimately make that happen? Well, you know, I, I didn't get involved in putting that together at all. I, I found out about it on social media uh, when they first announced it. So I wasn't really a part of it internally at all. Um, I, you know, Hulk and I talked about it after he announced it. And he had a couple guys working for him down there in Clearwater Beach, Florida, that really did all the organization. You know, Ron, Ronnie Howard, uh, his kind of right-hand man down there with the beach shops, was very involved. He had a social media guy that was really involved. Jimmy Howard, I'm sure, was involved to some degree. So I didn't get involved in the, the organization of it. But Hulk called me and asked me if Conrad and I would come down there as kind of a pre-show, do a a shorter version of our live 83 weeks show. And we did, we, you know, Conrad was happy to do that. So was I. So we went down and did that and, you know, we had a great time. It was at a great venue. Uh, you know, I don't know if you saw some of the pictures on social media, but it was in a venue called mangoes, which is kind of a, I'd never been in there before. It was more like a, Oh, you know, they're based in Miami. So it's got a very Caribbean kind of nightclub vibe, very colorful, but it's got a great main stage. They do a lot of vaudeville acts or, um, oh, wow. 
Brazilian dancing and, you know, a lot of Cuban music and, and, and show. So it's almost like it came right out of Las Vegas. The lighting is phenomenal. The venue is phenomenal. So from a look point of view and a vibe point of view, it was great. And then, you know, there were open bars all around, so everybody was able to have some fun and relax. And it, it was a great experience. So a question that I have always had about the Hogan and the NWO and you is when that happened in, I guess, 96, Batch of the Beach, and you guys are having those internal conversations about we're going to take the biggest star in the history of wrestling, maybe outside of Ric Flair, but Hulk Hogan, who has been a baby face of virtually his entire career, we're going to turn him heel. He's going to join the Outsiders. We're going to form this group. What were those conversations like between you and Hogan and Hall and Nash and, and what ultimately led to Hulk being like, hey, you know what, let's do this? Well, I mean, there were conversations that took place over an extended period of time. It wasn't like the idea kind of crystallized in my mind or anybody else's. And then we went, hey, here's this idea. You know, take it out of the box and put it on the table and, and tell everybody what the idea is. It didn't really happen that way. It really it started with me probably a year earlier in just spending a lot of time in Japan and, and studying, you know, the way they told stories and the way they presented the product and the psychology, you know, and, and looking at the difference between, you know, American wrestling, especially televised wrestling, uh, and, and the psychology and the domestic American product, and then looking at the psychology and the presentation of the Japanese product. Because then at the time, wrestling in the United States for WWF and clearly WCW was really on a downward trend. The house show business was kind of horrible. Television ratings were stable at best and probably in, in decline in, in reality. So knowing that, you know, the domestic wrestling scene was kind of trending downward and hearing all the stories about New Japan and how wrestling was so hot in, in Japan and, you know, the big shows New Japan were doing were putting 80,000, 90,000 people in the Egg Dome a couple times a year. I thought it would be a good idea to study that. And in the process of studying it, that's when the idea, you know, and a, lot, a lot of people have heard me say this and then they misinterpret it. Like I went over to Japan, I saw a wrestling angle that I liked, and then I came back and did it here. That's not the case at all. I studied the psychology of what was going on in Japan, not the actual storylines. Because clearly I don't speak Japanese, and I don't understand the interviews or any of the, you know, the, the script or, or, or recaps of, of things over there. So I, I was just studying psychology. Anyway, you know, the idea started to form in my head, and then it was more coincidence. That's the other thing. People think the NWO was this big grandmaster plan. And, and I'd like to make people believe that because it makes me sound smarter than I really am. <laughs> but the truth is that some of it just happened by coincidence. You know, so I had this idea, the idea in my head after being in Japan of a reality-based storyline that put, you know, one part of the company against the other part of the company. It's not, not an epic, you know, storyline element that hasn't been done before a, a million times over the last couple centuries. But the idea that it hadn't really been done in, in American wrestling, and it certainly hadn't been done the way I was going to do it. And so as the idea started forming in my head, and then all of a sudden Scott Hall, unpredictably, you know, became available. Now all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait a minute. If I want to have, you know, part of the company, you know, if I want to split the company and have this intercompany rivalry 
you know, by these outsiders coming in and taking over, holy cow, what's better right now than Scott Hall? And then almost at the same time, not exactly at the same time, but literally probably within days or maybe a week, when I was negotiating with Scott, Kevin Nash became available. Now I know I'm bringing Scott in. We'd already covered that, that business. Now I got Kevin available. Now I got this basic idea in my head and the characters to do it with. So it, was, it really was, it was happenstance in some respects. It was by design in, in other respects, but a lot of it was coincidence. Now, a year prior to all of this, you know, I, I had gone to visit Hulk Hogan in, in probably 90, late 94, 95, and tried to convince him that the, you know, red and yellow, eat your, eat your vitamins, say your prayers, lift your weights, whatever, Hulk Hogan was not really working. He knew it. I mean, it wasn't a surprise. I knew it. We all knew it. And I finally worked up the guts to fly down to Florida and talk to him about it. And I, you know, I was, you know, because Hulk and I have always had a good relationship, so... We sat down in, in his office, and I was really excited about turning him heel. And he just looked at me and said, man, until you walk a mile on my red and yellow boots, you'll never get it. And that was the end of it. He didn't want to turn heel. Now, cut to, now we're going back a year down the road again. Now we're in, now we're in 96. Now we're in, the, in May of 96. Scott Hall comes down. The following week, Nevin, Kevin Nash comes out and confronts me. And that's where we plant the seed for the third man. Well, about that time, Hulk was in California on location filming a movie. But he was getting videotapes of Nitro every week. So he's actually keeping up with the show while he's on a movie set. So he sees Scott Hall come down. He sees Kevin Nash come down. He hears them talking about the third man. About 48 hours later, I got a phone call from Hulk. Asked me if I could come out and visit in L.A. And I did. And I walked into his trailer. It was late at night. I didn't get there until about 1130 at night. And he had a case of beer open and a box of Cuban cigars. <laughs> and he said, so, who's the third man? And I sat down, lit a cigar, and said, well, who do you think it should be? And at this point, I had already talked to Sting about it. Sting was going to be my third guy. Because Hulk had already told me he didn't want to turn heel. So I didn't even think he was a consideration. It was going to be Sting. And I didn't want to tell him it was going to be Sting because I want to play with him a little bit and see what he thought. I said, well, who do you think it should be? And he stroked his Fu Manchu and he said, you're looking at him, brother. <laughs> so that's when, that was his idea, really. I mean, I, a year earlier, I wanted him to turn heel. He turned me down. He went off to do movies. I thought it was a dead issue. But when he saw Scott and he saw Kevin and he saw the energy and, and got an idea for me what the backstory was. He wanted in. And that was his idea. Wow. That is that is an amazing story. He's Eric Bischoff, host of 83 Weeks Live at Zany's this Sunday uh, here in Nashville. But that uh, see, I'd never heard that part that Sting was going to be the third guy. So you just taught me something that I didn't know. But you essentially having this conversation with Hogan a year before, and then he kind of makes it his idea and ultimately – it happens. Did you guys ever kind of wonder, all right, well, is this going to work? Or did you feel like that the audience was going to love it? No, no. I mean, I want to clear something up. Hulk didn't try to make it his idea. He, I mean, he, he knew the idea was already done. 
Right. The idea of him turning heel, he, he finally got comfortable. That, you know, in, in fairness, and this is, you know, one thing, and obviously he and I are friends, so I'm, I'm a little protective. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I know, I know what the narrative is about Hulk. It's always been, you know, that he's selfish and, you know, likes to steal everybody's thunder. And, you know, the, the narrative of Hulk over the last 30 years has been really, uh, you know, unfortunate in, in many respects, some respects. Um, but when you, when you got a guy like Hulk or, you know, Steve Austin, who famously walked out of the WWF because he didn't like the storyline and didn't think it was good for his character. You know, when you get to the Hulk Hogan level, the Ric Flair level, the Steve Austin level, you know, The Rock, whomever, Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, come on. All of these guys, at some point in their careers, once they got to the level they got, had to draw a line in the sand because they, they knew their characters better than anybody. You know, and whether it was me writing a story and trying to convince talent or it's Vince McMahon or his writers, every once in a while you get to that point with, with that top talent where they're not feeling it. And that's not being greedy. That's not being selfish. That's not really even being bad business. But when your business is your character, that's your only asset. That's the only thing you have any control over. And when you're a talent at that level and that, that asset is so valuable, you just don't want to risk it. You don't want to do things that are silly. You want to make sure you at least understand why that character is going to go through this transition, whatever it is, in a story or turning heel or babyface or whatever. So when, when people talk about, you know, wrestlers being selfish or greedy or, in this case, we're talking about Hulk not wanting to turn heel in 95, but willing to turn heel in 96. And it's all because we had a story. Right. If he would have turned heel in 95 from, from his point of view, if I was his business manager, I would say, okay, great. What's the idea? Well, we'll figure that out. So you want me to risk my only asset on an idea that you don't even have yet? The answer is no. I mean, that's the way, if you're really good at managing yourself or managing your client, that's the way you should look at that. If, if, if we could go back on that, on that day in 1995 when I was in his home trying to pitch him on turning heel, if he would have said to me, okay, maybe. What, what are you going to do? How are we going to do it? Who am I going to work with? Why am I turning heel? What's the psychology behind it? What's the motivation behind it? And are those things believable? Will the audience, will that resonate with the audience? Or is it going to look like, oh, it's not working, let's just turn them. Which, by the way, 90% of the time, no, maybe not that high, 75% of that time, that's what you normally see, even to this day. There's no real motivation. There's no real story. There's no real journey in this, this thing. This is just a moment. It's a beat. It's a swerve. It's, it's a means to an end. And that's what Hulk, and a lot of guys, when Steve Austin walked out of WWE, because, and I'm not speaking for Steve, he and I have never talked about this, but I guarantee you they wanted him to do something that he felt would not work for his character. And since he knows his character better than anybody, he's going to defend it. And so is Hulk, and so is a lot of guys. You just don't hear about it as much. Right, and well, and it makes a lot of sense because, I mean, Hulk Hogan has been an icon for, what, how long? 40 years? 30 years? I mean, so... Yeah, I, at that time, I, you know, at, at that time, it was a good 25 years or so. Right. years, I believe. So, yeah, you, gotta be, you just got to be careful, and any good talent will ask you to be careful. And, you know, 
Anyway, I can talk about this for days. <laughs> well, I, I'm, look, you feel free because it's a fantastic story. And, and I look at things from that time, talking with Eric Bischoff here on Through the Ropes, and you you had the initial three of Hogan, Hall, and Nash doing the NWO. Eventually, you become a part of things, and you see you as the – everybody, I guess, knew you were the president, knew your role, but you were the commentator. You become this on-screen kind of villain, the boss – well, fast forward maybe, a, what is it, a year later, you have Vince McMahon do the same thing. Do you kind of take some responsibility for the formation of the character Mr. McMahon because it was a counter to what you guys were doing on Nitro? Um, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm well aware I'm not 100% objective. I can't be. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, it's me. I did it. It was a big part of my life. So uh, I'll try to answer the question like I would in a court of law. <laughs> Just look at the facts, Your Honor. Before you, I have Exhibit A, which is the NWO, Eric Bischoff, turning heel on his own company. And he really is the boss, by the way. He's not a fictional one. He's the real one. Here, here are the characters. Here is the, um, the outline of the story that was taking place in 96 and 97 in Exhibit A. And then look over here at Exhibit B and notice that they're doing the exact same things. Vince McMahon is the evil boss that Eric Bischoff has been playing for a year. You know, DX is this group of kind of, you know, malcontents, you know, thug-type party frat boys, you know, having their way with everybody and everything. And also friends with Hall and Nash. (laughs) Yeah. And over here, you've got the NWO, who for the last year have been doing what they've been doing. So, Your Honor, I ask you, with the evidence that I put before you, with all due respect to Your Honor in the court, what the f***? <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think? Uh, it's pretty clear to me. Uh, I think, and that's what we saw a lot of, though. I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of tit-for-tat Back in those days, you would do something and Vince would respond or Vince would do something and you would respond. And that's what made the Monday Night Wars and and that era of wrestling just so intriguing and got people watching. Well, and I think even more to the point, and this is kind of the core of what 83 Weeks is all about, it's not so much the tit for tat because we were reacting to each other. We were trying, if they did something that's really cool, you know, this Monday, well, I want to try to do something bigger and better. You know, that was the fun of it all. And that's what pushed each of us to do crazier and crazier that the audience loved more and more and more. You know, we, you know, and, and I say this, and again, not, not in a defensive way, but just to kind of keep fans in, in context of the time. You know, WW, WCW did it first. You know, we broke the mold. We introduced reality programming we, in our, in our, into our storylines and into our characters. You know, WWE or WWF followed suit almost a year and a half later or a year later. Um, you know, we went live in, while they were taped. Well, they figured it out. They went live, too. You know, we, we, we introduced more, in addition to more reality-based storylines and characters, we targeted the show more for an 18- to 39-year-old demo. Did that early on in 95, you know, and it wasn't until 97 that Vince McMahon went, okay, let's quit being, okay, no more Joint the Clown, <laughs> you know, we're going to do DX, you know, no more Repo Mans, you know, no more Isaac Yankums, you know, we'll have a limited number of characters, but they went to a very reality-based storyline that we had been doing for over a year, year and a half at that point. 
So I, I think it's fair to say, if you really look at what the two shows were doing over that period of time, it wasn't the tit for tat, as you say, that, that elevated the business. It was the decision to quit producing it for children and our decision at WCW, and we had no choice, basically. WWE already dominated the teen and preteen wrestling audience. There was no way we were going to steal that audience from them. They had too big of a hold on it. But over here is the 18 to 39-year-old audience that nobody's really serving. So if we make our content more reality-based, our characters more reality-based, but a more adult-themed, and I don't mean necessarily just sexual in nature, but a, a more adult-themed storytelling approach will capture that audience, and we did. And that's, that shift, that paradigm shift from producing a teen and preteen wrestling show, which up until 95, WCW was doing too. They were just doing a horrible job of it, myself included. <laughs> we weren't good at doing what Vince was great at doing, okay? We tried. We, we weren't. But once we made the paradigm shift, and went after the 18 to 39 year old audience and then started crushing the WWF, they were forced to do the same thing. Now, this is an important point because now we're talking about 98, 99 as WWE is taking over in the ratings and now really beginning to hand WCW their ass. That period of time, that 36 month period of time, because that's all it was, is probably what changed wrestling forever. Because, and I know this is going to sound probably self-serving and maybe off the wall, but I, I believe that looking at WWF's business trends in 94 and 95 and 96 and until they shifted gears in 97 because we forced them to and taught them how to, more importantly, um, until that time, WWF was, was a deteriorating brand. It wasn't going anywhere. Uh, quite the opposite. Ratings were soft and getting softer. Household business was soft and getting softer. The only bright spot at that time for WWF was the international market. The domestic United States market was dying. Had we not ever gotten into that 83-week, 88-week Monday Night War era, had we not forced WWE to change the way they did business, had we not forced them to change the way they did their creative in order to adapt to the market, had we not led the way for them, they may not be the company that we know today. No, I don't think they would be. I, I think that, you know, you look at the two, the two products back in the day, I mean, it was, and I've, I've seen interviews of different wrestlers that were at the WWF at the time, uh, you know, that would eventually join you in WCW and they kind of had the same sentiment. So, um, very interesting conversation right now. Eric Bischoff, 83 weeks live at Zanies this Sunday here in Nashville. You go to zanies.com and get your tickets. $35 for general admission, 75 for VIP. He'll be alongside Conrad Thompson telling stories like you're hearing right now, uh, which is, which is pretty, uh, pretty awesome for me as a longtime wrestling fan. So I do want to um, I want to ask you about this as a guy that had to make a ton of business decisions as the president of WCW and in I guess that's a storyline the NWO was a business decision for you uh, various things that you did in the company when you look at something that the WWE is faced with right now whether to go to Saudi Arabia and and, and do the Crown Jewel pay per view there's a big financial 
um, you know, decision with that. They they're going to make a lot of money. How do you how do you deal with that from a PR standpoint internally with the superstars? How do you go into making those decisions and know you you just got to take whatever it comes or whatever it brings? Yeah, you know, there's so much I don't know about what went into that decision and the influences that were you know placed upon WWE while they were trying to determine whether they were going to go or not. So none of us know what those pressures were or obstacles really were. From the outside looking in, I think, you know, this is a hypothetical, so it's just all make-believe, and who knows for sure. But I would like to think if I would have been in that position, or anybody, you know, uh, I'm going to try to take out the fact that I know a little bit about Vince and a little bit about the way he thinks. I think anybody in that position would look at, okay, how is this going to affect my business in the short term? Well, in the short term, you know, you're going to lose a couple of bucks. More than a couple, but you know what I mean. You know, then you make an analysis. You know, well, okay, so if we take a $10 million hit or $50 million hit or whatever hit is, how does that really affect our business? How does it affect our stock? That's the first question. How does it affect the stock? Because when you're a publicly held company, every decision you make, you know, especially as a, as a chairman of the board or, or, or director uh, or member of the board uh, or an officer of the company, every decision you make, has to be what you believe is in the best interest of your shareholders. So that's the first thing you have to do, is how does this affect our stock, really, in the long term, short term and long term. So if somebody comes back and says, well, in the, long term, in the short term, we're going to take a $10 million hit. Um, but that's only going to affect our stock by, you know, one-eighth of 1%. And that's the short-term hit, and we'll be right back to where we are within 30 days. Now, if that's the answer to the analysis, then the money doesn't matter, really. And I, you know, without knowing WWE's financials, I sincerely doubt that the revenue hit, if had they chosen not to go to Saudi Arabia, I sincerely doubt that that revenue hit would have really had any impact on the bottom line, number one. Now it becomes, what's the long-term implication? You know, long-term, what's the risk? You do a PR analysis on that. It's probably wide open. You know, some people tell you, you know, you know, you, you'll be looked upon, you know, in the media as somebody who tried to break down barriers and create a new frontier, which not long ago in China, which, by the way, has a, is bad or worse of a record than Saudi Arabia, people were opening up companies over in China all day long, e even though they have some of the worst human rights um, violations and conditions anywhere in, in the world. But it doesn't matter. As long as you're going over and opening up business in China, great, your stock goes up. You know, it's different here for some reason, and I'm not sure I understand, and I'm not minimizing by any stretch what happened. But for me, just being an objective person, what is – somebody explain to me the difference between media companies in the United States um, and Google, you know, who's going over to China to help them censor their own people, okay, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a country that has the worst human rights violations of any country in probably the world, or at least is bad, that's cool. Their stock goes up. But WWE wants to present entertainment in Saudi Arabia, and all of a sudden there are people who are being critical of that. I, you know, it just amazes me. There's, there's such hypocrisy in the public, you know, certainly in the media, but I think if if I was in the process of making that decision, you'd have to analyze, okay? We're going to take a big PR hit because 
you know, all these social justice warriors out there are going to want to have something to, to warrior about, you know, and then you're going to have people that are going to think, okay, you're, you're breaking down barriers, you know, and maybe a year from now, this, this issue is going to be long forgotten, which is often the case. So you, you make that analysis. Or I think if you're someone that just really believes in what you're doing, you don't care about the money or the PR, and you're going to do what you're going to do. And I'm almost convinced that in the case of the WWE, it's probably the latter. Talking with Eric Bischoff, 83 weeks this Sunday at Zany's. Uh, and Eric, I do want to hit you with one more thing before I let you go, because we've covered a lot of ground here today. But you see the indie scene kind of back on the rise. Uh, it has been over the last few years, you know, Ring of Honor and... Uh, I, I just went to the NWA 70 show here in Nashville. How important is that for wrestling for to get these fans exposure to just real wrestling and guys that aren't in the WWE and they're not so storyline driven and you can just you can have two separate audiences where if they just want to see some work in the ring and, and not a lot of stuff on the mic, they can go to some of these indie shows and, and see some of the best superstars in the world. Yeah, I, I, it's such a fascinating time in the wrestling business right now, and I feel, I feel, in a way, like I'm in this weird time machine <laughs> because in 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 my mind, you know, I'm still 35 years old. I'm still relatively new to the wrestling business. I still think that way, you know. I but I but I think in terms of the way things were you know, in the late 80s and the 90s, you know, when I was really active in the business and maybe a little bit into the 2000s, right? Last 30 years, I think of the industry in that context. But now, every day, um, I'm learning and it being exposed to and seeing all of this opportunity that's been created by the advancement of technology in the world of streaming, both from the distribution side, you know, it started out, you know, Hulu, then Netflix, you know, Amazon Prime, WWE Network. You know, now all of a sudden everybody's coming out with their own streaming platforms. Five years ago, that didn't exist. Three years ago, it didn't exist. The technology was so bad, even two and a half or three years ago, that even though the technology was there, nobody really wanted to put their content on it because it was hit or miss as to whether or not the consumer would get it or what the quality would be. Now, because of streaming like fight, you know, in, in another 18 months, I guarantee that, that guarantee, I expect there to be a minimum of, of five new, really great streaming platforms because the technology has made it affordable for the, for the distributor. If you want to have your digital streaming platform, you could actually get that thing up and running for a couple hundred grand where five years ago it would have cost you a couple million dollars. Now that it's more affordable, more people are doing it. Now that more people are doing it, they're going to need more content. Now that they need more content, independent producers, independent wrestlers, independent promoters, all of a sudden now are going to have more opportunity, which means fans are going to have more opportunity, which means more young men and women are going to you know, want to be out there wrestling. So it's, it's such a great time to see all of this technology merging 
with, you know, an art form and a, and a form of entertainment that here in the United States has been the centerpiece of television since the beginning of television time. Eric Bischoff here with us on Through the Ropes, former WCW president, Raw General Manager, and of course, co-host of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. They'll be live at Zany's this Sunday. Uh, go to zanies.com and get your tickets. Eric, this has been a lot of fun. Hope we can do this again at some point, but I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was great talking to you, man. Have a good day. And really all I can say as uh, we say goodbye to Eric Bischoff is, wow. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. We covered a lot of ground. And, and you know, when I was preparing for the show this week um, and I found out that this was going to happen, that Eric was going to be able to join us, you know, I had a page full of notes. And I'm thinking, all right, we'll we'll get, a, get to a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. We'll get to a lot of stuff in 40 45 minutes whatever the case may be and as things went along during that interview i'm like there's no way i mean just the detail and and how he tells a story and his opinion on things i mean that was the guy that we all saw on wcw on wwe you can just hear the business sense that he has and um i i'm just sitting here you know as a as a host but also as a wrestling fan thinking to myself holy crap, like what just happened? I mean, that was fantastic. So I appreciate Eric Bischoff for joining us here on Through the Ropes this week. And again, go check it out. If you haven't gotten tickets yet, zanies.com, Nashville, this Sunday, 3 o'clock, $35 for general admission, $75 for VIP. Go check that out because I think it'll be a really, really good show. We've had Conrad Thompson on before. But just listening to Eric right there, um, you can only imagine what it's going to be like live and and in person when you can ask questions and get those true reactions like Eric was talking about. So check that out at zanies.com. And uh, again, if you miss any of our past episodes, I mentioned Conrad Thompson. We've had Jeff Jarrett on as well. Uh, All you have to do is go to thegamenashville.com, go to the pod center, find through the ropes. And uh, you can also subscribe on iTunes as well. And it'll just download straight to your device when a new episode comes out. So that is going to do it for this week's edition of Through the Ropes. We'll break down Crown Jewel, of course, uh, in next week's edition. And, you know, I haven't even given some thoughts on evolution. We'll do that as well. Uh, But really, really cool to have Eric Bischoff on today. Here on Through the Ropes, I'm Chase McCabe, ESPN 1025 The Game.